fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? Your help unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's nobody's calling. Nobody nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Hello and welcome back to Sports and Society. We're here on July. 19th we are still dealing with all this covid crap but this is brad i'm here with kyle how you doing man i'm doing well yeah we are dealing with a whole bunch of crap uh yeah i I find myself just um i guess like uh putting in work to compartmentalize the the mental heft of it all Mm -hmm. um that it's it's always true that were we to look out on the world and find things that make us feel bad, we can do that, but it seems so easy and so available and so constant and so prevalent that I find myself compartmentalizing more than usual or trying mm-hmm. to maybe for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. But, I find myself throwing myself into things that, uh, you know, uh, running as if the time is feels short with things. And partly that's, you know, uh, who freaking knows at this point, like, uh, death feels closer than it's ever felt before. Um, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, the odds are still very much not that we're going to pass away, but it still feels much closer than it ever has. Um, so that lends some weird urgency to things, but also, um, you know, uh, just trying to stay busy so you don't have to think about things. And I'm definitely, you know, I spent way too much time probably reading the news to be an informed citizen before, and I'm reeling that back in a little bit. Yeah, same. I, I've been trying to institute a practice of uh, waiting until like the evening to mm. check out news um, with the hope that there's not anything too pressing in the morning, in early afternoon, because uh, it helps a lot to not have to look at it first thing. Interesting. I kind of have the opposite thing that I will, and this goes back to a coping mechanism that I learned from a therapist as, uh, you know, we're big fans of theirs. Um, yes. To like allow myself time to be stressed out. And so like oh, for right, me, right. there's like in the morning uh, and then usually one time in the afternoon, but I try not to do it in the evenings because I want those evenings to be a little more calm. Uh, right. I guess. So, right. Like, after i don't really care what happens after four i don't want to i don't want to hear about it right right yeah i like that it it makes me think i might push it up to like one o'clock and just put it right in the middle (laughs) yeah um meanwhile the sports world continues to try and move along why the mls is still playing is beyond me at this point i haven't even been paying attention how's it going well, they had a whole other team that pulled out this week. Um, oh, I wow. forget which team it was. But it's like, come on, guys. What are, what are we doing here? I, yep. and ironically, some of the highlights I've shown have shown some of the best goal MLS goals I've seen in a long time. But it's just like, I can't watch this right now. Yeah. I, I experienced the same thing. It like didn't feel good to watch. Yeah. Uh, it seemed kind of silly. But... but. I am still enjoying, uh, particularly Arsenal beating Man City yesterday. Gave me a nice, uh, nice lift into the FA Cup Finals. 
Yeah, they have a chance to win a trophy. I know. And I I have to say that uh, uh, internal pessimist, I'm still not super hopeful, but Arteta seems to be doing some good things, and that's uh, those that's a bright spot I can hold on to in some ways. Who are they going to be playing in the final? So we don't know yet. I think uh, Man City and Chelsea are playing today, and whoever the winner is. Which, of course, that'll be... Uh, I you know I love it when there's an underdog in the finals, but um, there's also something compelling about these old rivals going up against each other in that space. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Have you been paying attention to Christian Pulisic? Pulisic? I have. Um, yeah, uh, he's been he's been pretty dang on hot since they came back. He has, yeah, yeah. He feels uh, in clips i've watched there seems to be that urgency in him mm-hmm. and that confidence in him that those true stars have uh you know those top 30 or so players that kind of take the field and know that they're better than everyone else mm-hmm. uh he, he seems to kind of have that and it paired with the i also feel that a lot of those i don't know this could be an interesting useless conversation to have at some point <laughs> um but i feel like maybe like save the top like two or three players in the world the other ones kind of the other like top 50 so like three um, to 50 kind of play with a fear mm-hmm. that like it might be taken away from them at some point um and i see that in him so for better or worse, that kind of like how greatness is paired with fear. Um, I see him saying like playing at a level that's really, really high, maybe higher than I've ever seen an American play with in Europe. Yeah, well, I think there's a um, it's it's interesting because I think you know there's this, there's a normal flow, and I think you see it particularly in soccer um, for whatever reason, but like. You know, young player will often come up in their first five games. They're like phenomenal because there's no expectations on them. Right. They come out and they're just doing things that like you're like, wow, that's I, they have an energy, a balanced energy. And then there comes a point when those expectations and they come in pretty quick. So like often like three to five games in, you'll start to see it. And it's like the level of energy and production is just not quite there because they feel like they have something to lose. Like you say, mm-hmm. um, and that's always interesting. And I feel like what we saw with him, that's kind of where he was in the first half of the season. And I feel like when we've come back, we've seen him turn that into a, like a more productive anger and frustration. And I do have to say, like, I think he matches just from a tactical perspective. They've been playing Giroud up front a lot more for Chelsea yeah, um, and I think Pulisic's game matches a lot better with Giroud's game than it did with Abraham's game. Yeah, so we're getting I into with that technical too, yeah. stuff at this point, but because um, <laughs> uh, Pulisic just wants to score, uh, right. and so he is in the box at all times, and so that, I think that just matches. I love seeing that in a player. It's also like I can imagine as a teammate, he wouldn't uh, if you were a certain kind of teammate, he wouldn't be your favorite because he was always making the runs that maybe you thought you should be making uh, but i think right. that's why with Giroud it works well because he loves to play that link up game right um anyway uh i'm excited to see it uh and some of these other folks i'm excited to see Gio reyna I'm, i want to see where he kind of goes um yeah there's just some really exciting talent from a u.s perspective out there right now yeah i paid attention maybe the um, bundesliga's first six or seven games back uh with the intention of following what Reyna was up to, but I have kind of stopped 
paying attention. Has he been getting playing time? Because he got hurt like mm-hmm. in warm-ups before the first game. He has gotten a few. I haven't seen any, but he's gotten some time. He started one or two games, um, uh, but I haven't I haven't been able to watch yeah. much. Um, I will say, um, in terms of uh, this is I'm trying to stay positive here. So uh, I hope you I hope you fans can appreciate that for once in our our tenure as the worst uh-huh. time. I'm trying to stay positive here, but I have to say that uh, the most joy I get from sports these days is probably. Um, Alfonso Davies for Bayern right now. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this guy play? A little bit, yeah. He is just freaking electrifying. Everything that I want to watch in sports, like the technical skill, the joy of playing, uh, and then just like the raw athleticism. The guy is so freaking fast. Right, right. And when you see someone that's that fast compared to everybody else on the pitch in that at that level of competition, it's really kind of staggering. Yeah. Yeah, he somehow stands out even more because he's on Bayern, I feel like. Mm-hmm. That there was kind of a, um, almost a dullness to Bayern's greatness the last few years, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Uh, and so that causes him to contrast with that a little bit, and it, it makes them exciting to watch. So this is a bit of a side note here, but I have to say this because it came up yesterday uh, in a conversation with some friends that I will always find Frank Ribéry to be among my favorite players. Mm-hmm. Um, if only because I'm so freaking jealous of that face scar. And what is it about <laughs> men and face scars looking like badasses? I don't know, but man, I, I, I'm just kind of jealous of it. <laughs> I feel like I saw him in the news recently that he's like playing really well. Well, he's retired, I think, or this was his last season. Um, okay. Is he so. playing in Israel? He's playing somewhere weird. I don't, I don't remember, but um, yeah. I, I love it. I, the guy looks like he's been in a bar fight, and you just don't yeah. want to mess with him. Yeah, that's funny. But, what have you been paying attention to, man? Uh, so I've been watching too much golf mm. and uh, paying too much attention to golf. And in some ways, I, I think it's I can be honest about it and say that it's a form of escapism for me recently. Mm-hmm. And we, because you and I talk a lot about that, I've felt at odds with that at times, but also have found some joy in it just to uh, watch competition um, and to kind of dig into the desire to watch competition and to have a desire to watch competition that is more in line with our value system, uh, a couple things have stood out recently. And this happened on Wednesday of this week, so the day before the Memorial Tournament started at Jack Nicholas's course in Columbus. Uh, Tony Finau, Ian Poulter, Graham McDowell, and John Rahm played a little exhibition match play mm-hmm. for charity. And all four of them were mic'd up and the announcing or the color commentary was so minimal uh, because the four of them wouldn't shut up and talk <laughs> the entire time. And it was, it, it was, I think, kind of close to, I think, what you and I would desire to see in watching hmm. competitive golf. It was only nine holes, so it was only like two hours. And it was four exceptional golfers, four guys that are really friendly with each other, four guys that 
uh, in social situations are really kind and really nice. Um, I feel like Ian Poulter is the only guy out of those four that um, has said and done some things that are not amazing, but nonetheless, uh, he seems kind of to have matured a lot and grown up a lot and is kind of a little bit more humble and approachable. At any rate, uh, it was really pleasant and it was really fun and the golf was exceptional. Hmm. Um, They were essentially playing a best ball, so taking the best score of the two, um, two versus two. And Tony Finau and John Rahm uh, were like 10 under through nine holes. Um, (laughs) So it was just really impressive and really relaxed and really fun. And it was also really fascinating because they were trying hard but not too hard. And so with mics on, you got to hear um, kind of their expertise at work, Mm -hmm. uh, which I find really compelling personally. Now, this the other side of this story is that uh, Brooks Kepka uh, is getting really good at making enemies on the PGA Tour. Uh, so his list of enemies now includes Patrick Reed, Brandel Chambly, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, Paige McKenzie, Nick Faldo. The most recent one is he tweeted out a, f- a gif of Kenny Powers uh, being accused of using steroids from Eastbound and Down, the HBO show, uh, as a troll and subtweet of Bryson. And then uh, Paige McKenzie of the Golf Channel commented that he should be fined for that, that is was unprofessional. And then he tweeted out something that said, uh, when you turn on the Golf Channel and hear that annoying voice and realize it's Paige McKenzie. Which is just so low class and mean, uh, and it's bullying and uh, it, it's really frustrating and that was paired with two weeks ago in uh, Harbortown they asked Brooke Kepka if he wanted to be mic'd up and so this is where these stories connect uh, and he said he would never do it and that the PGA is already interesting enough and they don't need to do these things to pander to the audience and Nick Faldo um, kind of trolled Brooks Kepka. Because he's like, okay, here's Brooks. We're going to let him talk us through this shot. And so for like nine seconds, Brooks Kepka hits a shot and doesn't say one word. And Nick Faldo's like, wow, fascinating. Thanks, Brooks. Um, <laughs> which was a great troll. Uh, but at any rate, it, it was just like um, he, Brooks Kepka, seemingly so emblematic of bro culture, of hyper masculinity, of toxic masculinity, of uh, this like staid, boring um, kind of gate holder uh, way of approaching the sports world and golf in particular, contrasted with the four of those guys playing a really nice, fun round. And it was just like a breath of fresh air of just like, this is possible. Uh, and so the conclusion, I guess, is that I feel like there's a lot of space in golf and in sports to maybe kind of, I don't know, like hold a little hope that there's other ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't say I'm surprised about Brooks. I think we are pretty much on the record suggesting that we are not fans of his going way back. Um, mm-hmm. But I was going to ask you if you have uh, thoughts about John Rahm as he looks at potentially being the no- new number one. In what context? I don't know. Just like in, in any kind of context, I guess. Okay. 
Um, I really like John Rahm as a player, and um, he's apparently very well liked on tour. He's friendly, mm-hmm. um, kind of jovial guy, uh, kind of lighthearted off the course, uh, and then extremely hyper competitive on the course. Um, he also withholds an, an immense amount of natural talent. Uh, he, his game is so dialed in right now because he kind of has has let go, I think. And he's kind of taken the expertise part of golf and cultivated it to a certain extent. But he, when he really thrives, it's when his, he just swings mm. <laughs> and just plays. The amount of natural talent he has is exceptional. And this gets into a nuanced part of golf. But that John Rahm, Tony Finau, and Bryson are kind of – uh, at the top of the game right now um, is all because of ball speed and the amount of ball speed that they can mm-hmm. generate. And that's the name of the game right now. And so I think when the thought of like bombing the ball first came um, onto tour with Fred Couples and then of course Tiger took it to another level and now we're at a third level, I would say. Uh, it's John Rahm and Tony Finau in Bryson. So it's no surprise that the two of them are at the top of the leaderboard right now. Hmm. Yeah. But he's, yeah, yeah. I mean, the specifics here that like John Rahm and Tony Finau both generate like ball speed around 190, 195 hmm. miles an hour. Um, and there was actually a video that Tony Finau posted last week of he hit 206. Uh, no, since they started monitoring it, no one on tour has ever broken 200 in a round. Uh, but it's looking like it's going to be either Bryson or Tony. Uh, but John Rahm could do it if he wanted to. He has that talent as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's hmm. fascinating to me, but I not know, important I, probably. <laughs> I know you uh, you don't care for this gentleman, and I, uh, you know, my love for him has faded over the years. But uh, it does all that stuff makes me respect someone like. Um, Zach Johnson even more for being able to hold with these other guys without having mm-hmm. that talent in some ways. Yeah. Well, it, that was the part of that foursome that was really interesting too is because Ian Poulter and Graham McDowell were being outdriven by like 75 yards on mm-hmm. every hole. Um, and so that they can hang in there is important, I think. And this gets into another thing of golf is facing in a reckoning about what to do with the three of them, Rom, Finau, and Bryson, and the RNA, uh, which oversees golf in um, the United Kingdom, essentially subtweeted Bryson and said, there are rule changes coming, um, mm. which is interesting at, at a conceptual level of like, you can't tell someone not to lift weights, uh, but you can choo- you can change the tool that you put in their hands. Mm. Um, so I think we might see a little bit of a reckoning or at least a plateau on golf technology. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. What about you? That is boring and not all that interesting. <laughs> like, but it's what's been on my mind. What have you been paying attention to? Well, I think um, to kind of build off of that, so two things. First, um, you know, I shared some YouTube videos with you yesterday or the day before about F1 stuff, which uh, I would never have watched if you hadn't already had some interest in it. Um, mm-hmm. But some really fascinating stuff about the different ways that drivers drive. Um, 
mm-hmm. was uh, really fascinating. I think it goes to it speaks to that point about you know how cool it is to watch someone that's really good at their craft talk yeah. about it um, mm-hmm. and learn like what the specifics of why they're doing the things that they're doing are, and that's what makes. I think that's you know. Zach Lowe has changed the way I watch the NBA and made it much more compelling for me because of how he can explain the game. Right. Um, and so I think that it's just, it goes to speak to why we enjoy it on some level. Like there's a natural athleticism to it, but you know, getting to see people think through challenges on a moment by moment basis is I think uh, really compelling. And one of my favorite parts is, uh, of the sports world. Yeah, and I I I was thrilled that you sent me that video. By the way, uh, <laughs> there's a no, I don't know if you saw. There's a number of them. Like he talks about yeah. uh, some of those other famous drivers as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I it it I think is what is keeps pulling me back to Formula One, and why I I keep getting sucked in further and further is is that exact piece is truly the amount of knowledge necessary to do well in that sport Mm -hmm. Uh, and the amount of engineering and expertise and technological innovation and how all those things come together with athleticism to make the sport happen uh i it yeah it's kind of a gawking sort of watching uh, of just kind of like i can't believe this is happening kind of thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also at the same time acknowledging that uh what is compelling is it, it is truly compelling. <laughs> like uh, watching it all play out in a race on Sunday is is fascinating. Well, I think it you know it speaks to the, you and I have a uh, I think a natural curiosity about things that I hope uh, I hope I can instill in my daughter. But I also think as part of if I want to be grandiose and make claims about how stellar we are as people, um, uh, go for it. I think it's part of what's wrong with society in some ways that we're not, people aren't curious about other people and their interests anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I think anything is fascinating on a certain level. And I, you know, I've shared the fashion week example before, like, I don't, I don't care about fashion, week, but I bet if I researched it and I, I've been struck recently by music stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a song that came out uh, yesterday that I was felt really compelled by. It's a pop song. It's not really particularly special, but um, I wound up watching like five different people react to it, uh, which mm-hmm. is the the weird culture of YouTube at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, fascinatingly, one of them uh, was like picking up on all these all of these different samples that they have in there. And like where where these samples came from and how relevant that is to the meaning of the song and stuff. And it's like there's a whole subculture to these things that like I don't understand music at all, but those that do like are getting layers to it and a, a, an enjoyment from it that I can't achieve. Although I could with time, uh, and I think that's just speaks to how everything has those weird little subcultures and things to it that make it fascinating for those that invest time and energy into it. Truly, yeah. Yeah, and I, I I am comfortable, I think, asserting that there there is value in paying attention to what is garnering attention. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. So, yeah, and it, it's a fine line because I, I find myself sometimes watching Formula One and watching golf and feeling pretty bad about it uh, and never knowing quite, like, where the line is of, like, is this curiosity or am... 
I partaking in something that maybe isn't all that great. Yeah. But I think that with that perspective and with that discomfort comes some, for me, is where you can allow yourself to enjoy it as well Mm -hmm. on some level. Yeah. I do. I will say the other thing that captured me this week, um, speaking of weird complexities, is uh, did you see this guy that uh, ran this 200 meter? They did this remote 200 meter thing. Noah Lyles. Have you seen this? Uh I so I saw headlines about it. I tell me about it. So so they they're doing the, the Diamond League stuff for track and field, but of course they're not all flying places. They're all doing it remotely, which is fascinating. Like I did not expect this. Like to click on this video and see these three guys running the two hundred, mm-hmm. but they're running it in three separate places simultaneously and timing it all, and it's yeah. all on video. It's like the engineering is fascinating. It make it's one of those like. Well, this is where the innovation should be happening uh, right. in some ways. Right. But um, hilariously, like he ran this time that was phenomenal. Uh, I think he was like 18.91. And the commentators wow. were immediately like, that can't be right. <laughs> no, no, that can't be right. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, great. And what, what turned out to happen was that they uh, they had set him up to run in lane three. Uh-huh. Uh, or like lane five, I forget which one it was, but that, uh, and then they come back and move the equipment like on the same spot on the track, but put it in like lane three or lane five, which or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, and essentially shorten the race for the guy to 185 oh, meters. Right. Right. And so here he is, he runs his blazing time and would have won probably if it had been 200, cause he just ran a great race and was super uh-huh. fast, but um, he didn't run 200, but he meters. didn't run 200 <laughs> meters. <laughs> that's pretty great it's all the commentators were me like no no that's not right and it turns out no they were they were right it was not <laughs> he didn't actually <laughs> run that. that's awesome um, yeah anyway yeah it does it does beg the question of uh yeah if, if there's space for more digital events like that and mm-hmm. how to increase the legitimacy of them mm-hmm. yeah well, you want to talk about corporations? I love talking about corporations. Let's do it. We love talking about the man, so we're going to do that now. <laughs> yeah, well, so what are we talking about? Well, before we get too deep into this, I'm going to sh- kick it to you to talk about two examples currently. Um, but uh, I do want to share this as a quick fact before we get into this, that as of 2015, and this was the most recent numbers I could see, that the world of corporate sponsorship amounted to upwards of $70 billion. Um, and that estimate estimations are that 70% of that's going towards sports. Um, so that's the, the ballpark that we're playing in, in this regard. Um, uh, but we're going to kind of going to talk about the good and the bad of that. Do you want to share a couple examples for us, Kyle? Sure. So within the spirit of considering sports, as a vehicle for corporations to amass wealth. I think two stories that really stand out right now is the Washington Redskins changing their mascot, or at least so far they've said they are going to. They haven't completely done it yet. Uh, But the short story is that in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests and 
the sort of public reckoning and awakening that is happening as it relates to social justice in America, the Washington Redskins had pressure put on them again, as they have had put on them for 25, 30, 40 years now uh, to change their name. And Dan Schneider, the owner of the Washington Redskins, has been notorious for his ability to deflect that pressure. And, and just push be an back asshole in general, just, but yes. Just not care. <laughs> uh, and... So nonetheless, uh, in the matter of the last 48 hours, he's agreed to do that and had uh, something like 15 counts of sexual harassment filed against them. Um, mm. So he's had a big week. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that pressure uh, obviously was coming from the public, but it manifested in, pu in pressure from Nike and FedEx, uh, two of the biggest shareholders in the Washington Redskins uh, as a as an entity, as a, as a vehicle for their um, corporate growth. And so that's where the pressure truly came from and the impetus for change truly came from. This uh, relates to, compares with, but also contrasts with uh, what is happening with the NBA in China. And we have talked about this before, but the story is not going away. And I think it's super important to keep talking about it in particular because of the recent laws that have been passed in Hong Kong uh, that essentially label activists as terrorists. Uh, and I feel like the NBA has a massive responsibility to say something about that when um, the NBA itself uh, generates about $500 million off of the relationship with China. And then the corporations also, you could say, have a massive responsibility as they're the ones that uh, are going to see billions of dollars uh, of money generated by the NBA still operating in China. And so it raises this big question, I guess, it, it comes down to this kind of concept of what we're currently calling corporate social responsibility in sports, which it, it was kind of interesting this week to kind of look back at the history of what I'm going to call CRS, because that's kind of what it's shortened mm -hmm. to in all the articles. But uh, it, it's it's not old. It's actually quite brand new. Um, the concept of uh, in corporate responsibility, social responsibility takes several forms, but ultimately it's the idea of like engaging with social issues in a community. And it's associated with sports teams and kind of, uh, locked in with uh, the bottom line um, as it relates to these corporations that can make a lot of money off of these teams and they um, can make more money if the team has a better image in the community and that better image is cultivated by social justice to some extent or at least social responsibility. Social justice might be overstating it. So these are the two cases that are in front of us and a whole lot of questions come up. Um, so did any of that kind of get you leaning towards one of the questions we could be asking? Yeah. So I think, um, just as a little bit more background and then I'll pose a question to you here. Um, just so, for those that aren't aware as well, in addition to the Chinese situation in Hong Kong, it's becoming pretty clear that there's a, uh, what appears to be a genocide happening against the Uyghur population that right. is not getting a ton of uh, play right now. Uh, and so that's just... I mean, some really kind of scary imagery and, and um, uh, doesn't, I don't know what to do about it, but uh, it's pretty clearly there. Um, right. Uh, but beyond that, I, you know, corporate social responsibility, um, as you say, the parlance of CSR is uh, 
been around for a long time. And I think it's just important to note that there's several layers to it. Um, and that comes in many forms and fashions so that you have something like Walmart conducting social responsibility by talking about how environmentally friendly their products are, even though we know that, you know, Walmart is still a major driver of climate change and it's, it's a whitewashing or a greenwashing would be the term. Um, often there so there's that level but then we also see companies that are a little bit more forward with that so i mean you got somebody like a uh oh, there are a number of good examples but uh, uh ben and jerry's comes to mind or patagonia as at the top of that list where they're like real they exist to make money but they're real clear values that they put forward in terms of they are really trying to practice what they preach in a way that's different from what um other folks do so I, there's and there's of course everything on the spectrum between them there's a new kind of movement um around the country to form what are known as benefit corporations um which is kind of a, a institutionalization of the triple bottom line um and there uh, there appear to be tax benefits on the way for that so it's uh, an incentivization to get folks to kind of go after that classification but it's it's similar to you know, something like LEED certification for green building or, or otherwise that companies can get certified as a benefit corporation uh, and then use it in their marketing and, and in other places. Um, so there's a long history there indeed, and it comes in all shapes and fashions. But I, my question for you kind of in the current moment, um, as we see a political infrastructure that is not responsive in any way um, or very responsive in very few ways, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the potential for corporate pressure and corporate responsibility to be perhaps the most powerful democratic means of creating change in the moment. So I guess I hear in that the the idea of instead of protesting outside the Supreme Court, we protest outside of Nike headquarters. Well, not necessarily, but that where we protest, but that where it's being heard and where it's having the most impact is perhaps in Nike headquarters and not at the Supreme Court. Yeah. I've always wondered about this in the context of what would it look to what would it look like to formalize that fact? And an example would be if it is true that Nike is more effective and more powerful and has more salience than our federal government, then to what extent should we be able to vote who gets to be the next CEO of Nike? Mm. And so when it comes to making it democratic, I think that's where I go. And I guess that points me to this space where I am still not an anarchist. (laughs) Um, as in, I, I believe in formalizing the uh, democratic ethos that I have um, personally. Um, if I'm sure that, sh- that there's a lot of pitfalls and, and gaps in that logic, but I, I guess it, I, the fact that no one has been able to make Dan Schneider change until Nike said change, uh, I feel like is the mo- most proof that these are the most powerful institutions in the world. Mm-hmm. And if we believe in democracy, then I think we need to be fighting for a say in how they're run. Um, I, I, I believe that. And I also believe that's not socialism or communism. <laughs> I'm not asking for Nike to not be 
capable of generating the amount of wealth they are, but how they wield their power uh, and enforce their their agenda on the world, I, I feel like um, does need some bureaucracy around it, I guess. I don't know. I'm I'm talking just off the top of my head. <laughs> so I might need to think about those things more. I guess I say them is like, what do you think of that? Or where, where do you, what does that pull up for you? Yeah, I, and I agree with you. Um, I guess it's, you know, I'm not, uh, this kind of goes back to our conversation from last week that I think I'm uh, a little more pragmatic than you are and don't, uh, uh, don't want to give myself the false hope that maybe we can get to that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways I, am intrigued by this question of whether or not, um, like how we manipulate their feelings now. Cause I think we've been the, the biggest, uh, you know, like it's, it's happened in some really stupid ways in terms of, you know, um, uh, taking down episodes of golden girls that are not at all what this is really about. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also had some really powerful effects like this. Uh, but there is, you know, it's always, it's not, I don't think Nike is going to change, um, policy on police funding. Um, mm-hmm. at least I don't, they have a ton of power, but I would, I would struggle to figure out how exactly they would manipulate that power, except in some place like Corvallis or someplace like that, where Nike has a home base and can, uh, articulate that power and, uh, politically in ways that it can't otherwise. So I do think that like there are certain places where corporations do not have all the power, but in these symbolic places, um, they've got a ton, they've got a ton of stuff. And so, you know, what, uh, figuring out how to best utilize that as, um, a democratic society is interesting to me. And it, it, mm-hmm. I think it demonstrates, you know, I think I've been, uh, I don't know how much I've talked about this on the air, but I know you and I have talked about this a fair amount that the lack of the complex narrative and some of the cancel culture stuff that's out there right now troubles me. But I think that what you can see is it's having some really positive influences in some places. And I think that Nike is scared of being in bed with someone like the Redskins in some mm-hmm. level. And so that's what's leading this. And so what, how can you utilize that, um, in productive ways uh, is an interesting thought at this point in time. Yeah. And except like, what do we do with the fact that if we go that route, we have to accept the fact that those shareholders are operating from a bottom line rationale Mm -hmm. and not the goodness of their hearts. Um, And I guess that leads to a really nuanced complex space as we often wind up in and I think because formalizing or institutionalizing or bringing bureaucracy into this space is idealistic and sort of naive and probably not going to happen in our lifetime if ever uh, I think it is fair to say that we we make a request and fight for uh, bringing nuance into the conversation mm-hmm. Uh, and bringing diverse voices into the conversation and sharing power more equitably in that space. And so this is what gets me to maybe kind of a hot take, but um, the senator that wrote the letter uh, to Adam Silver and to, um, oh, what's the reporter's name? Woj. So this is 
coming from conservatives and I feel like conservatives are latching onto the NBA story because it's easy fodder for them uh, to score points with their base and to make uh, absurd political points. But I, I guess what's interesting is that uh, the senator and myself cross over here, right? In that we both want the NBA to do what's right here, Um at least on the surface, semantically, we're talking about the same thing. Uh, but what we don't have in common is a valuing of complexity once we're in the mm-hmm. same room having this conversation. And that is a bigger question that gets to kind of like the the feeling of the times of like and where the political and social divide is happening is um, that inability for conservatism to incorporate complexity and so that's where i would like respond i loved Woj's response of just fuck you (laughs) but it's also true that i still want to have a conversation i Mm -hmm. think with with that uh side of it all but i want that conversation to be a complex one and i I don't know if that's possible that's where i maybe get kind of bummed out yeah i i agree with you because i think that um it's just in this kind of corporate space here like i think it's worth noting that um you i'm gonna i'm gonna speak for both of us because i think we agree on this um that uh we uh, pretty much abhor the uh the influence of corporations on our society Mm -hmm. um like they result in many many ills including the uh, aggregation of wealth uh, ill treatment of individuals the the driver of how we value people as as money as opposed to uh more inherent things environmental destruction uh, consumerist tendencies all of this stuff largely can be attributed to being driven by corporations um that being said uh, it's a complex narrative because corporations are also driving some really positive things you know i think about in terms of some social issues like uh you're more likely at nike uh, or FedEx or some of these other places as, a, as an individual of color to get in a position of power than just about anywhere else in society. They're much more uh, merit-driven, and so those kind of things uh, go by the wayside a little bit. So, like, they're, you know, they've got uh, some diversity and inclusion initiatives because they recognize, like, not just the uh, and social justice aspect of it, but they recognize the perspective of having shared... Uh, perspectives in the or divergent perspectives in leadership Um, they understand how that all works Um, so you know in some ways they are both the worst and some of the most progressive and I I, you know if you look at politics right now I mean this the statistics would suggest that we're over 60 percent you know the mask wearing stuff it's like 63 percent of folks wear a mask all the time and uh, like 18 to 20 percent wear a mask most of the time when they're in a public setting so I mean like uh, this mask wearing stuff is really the voice of a very few people, and yet it's dominating the conversation and it's dominating the political space. And yet corporations can afford to look at it from a um, what is the actual percentage number because that's what matters, not the how loud the voices are question. Um, right. And so that's there's all kinds of interesting nuance in there. And so I think, uh, for me anyway, it speaks to this place where we need to be able to hold divergent opinions at the same time and say Mm. i am both going to support and uh the power of these institutions to do corporate responsibility and i'm going to take advantage of every opportunity i have to push 
them in that direction while also working to totally undermine the system in which allows them to operate. And like, I will go to Nike and ask them for money for things while also uh, voting for systems and advocating for policy and uh, perhaps even protesting to limit their very essence of what they can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was really well said. <clears throat> and yeah, you spoke perfectly for me better than I could have spoken for myself uh, in that space. And yeah, it, it leads me to a space of not knowing what to do or, or what to think. And I, I, I want to kind of like, I, I feel the urge, which I think is a corporate capitalist urge to take a position but I don't know fully what position to take. And I often think back to, this may not be important or interesting, but I think of how I was introduced to this conversation Hmm. and kind of the dynamics of it. And it was by a professor in graduate school who had spent most of his life advocating and fighting for, uh, literally on the front lines, for uh, fair trade practices in coffee. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, it, he, um, I think it was in the late 90s or early 2000s that Folgers uh, agreed to some fair trade practices, which allowed them to put the fair trade sticker on their coffee cans. Mm-hmm. And he said it, was, it completely divided and tore apart the activist world for fair trade mm-hmm. when Folgers did that. Uh, and it, it was a moment of everything becoming more complex and more nuanced and more difficult to understand in a space that seemingly was impossible to take positions in without being extremist. So it was either be an extremist or be part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the moral, ethical dilemma for an individual in that space, I, I feel like, is... Uh, a fascinating conversation wherein there are very few answers um, or routes to like know what to think exactly. But this all comes to a place for me of I was talking to some other friends about China this week and like gross abuse of human rights um, mm-hmm. doesn't seem complicated. Right? Like fair trade coffee, like that is a human rights issue, absolutely. Uh, but there's a diff. Maybe I, this is me not knowing where to stand. But I think there's a difference between like genocide and fair trade coffee, mm-hmm. where maybe we're forced into this like undesirable place where we have to admit that there is a difference. Or I I don't know how to talk about it truly. Um, but that's where it's like I. It's pretty inexcusable, I think, in in that sort of space to to go with the NBA on this and, and to allow them to stay silent on this. And I found it even more alarming this week that um, Beyond Meat, the company, hmm. um, that uh, Kyrie Irving, DeAndre Jordan, and Shaq are all massive investors in, um, is in partnership now with Joe Tsai, uh, the owner of the Nets and the co-owner of Alibaba, the biggest company in China. And uh, they're opening up production and distribution in China. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it that's like, okay, you're you're opening up with an authoritarian government that is stamping out democracy and committing genocide and gross human rights abuses. Like, okay, go for it. Like, 
but I, I'm going to say no. I, and then it leaves me in a place of like, do you and I watch the NBA? Mm-hmm. Because the NBA is the forerunner of corporate social responsibility and the forerunner of liberalism in professional sports in America mm-hmm. uh, and driving a lot of the social change that we see in value. Yeah. I, it's it, it leads to some really difficult questions there. And I think it's, you know, this is something we're going to have to get used to grappling with everywhere. Um, yeah. You know, I, there was a, um, a meme that went around somewhere on my social media feed this past week about how, um, uh, how can we consider Beyonce a feminist when she's producing all of her clothing and sweatshops that pay you know, mm-hmm. next to nothing. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, it's not, it's tough because it's being used for political points um, that I don't agree with. But at the same time, like there is a complex narrative there and I know how complex sweatshops are. So don't get me wrong. Like it's a, right. uh, it's, it's not a, uh, uh, they're not the ills that many would have them believe. And they're also uh, are very often problematic in many ways. Um, but how do you understand that? And I, I think it goes back in some ways to our conversations about, um, a- activism and how we have to live in the gray space more. Um, and I'll, I'll use an example from this week that we saw um, Nick Cannon making some absolutely asinine comments, following up on some asinine comments made by yeah. some NFL players and some other athletes about uh, some um, uh, anti-Semitic stuff, uh, some just really ugly, hateful stuff. Uh, and yet, um, I think it's important that we we call that out and we don't we hold people accountable for it without limiting their voice in other places. So like right. that's the big question for the NBA and for us I think is how do we hold the NBA accountable while also uh supporting them in the places where we want to see them supported. Right. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, and granting the privilege and freedom to be a complex individual. Mhm. Um, that's a great point yeah yeah um and kind of like paying attention to who that is reserved for um historically and currently Mm -hmm. yeah um i think the other thing i'll put alongside that uh i'm maybe not being as inquisitive as i thought i was hoping to be uh, in this space but I think along the side of like, okay, what can we do? Like, can we lobby Nike more effectively? Or is that the best route? I think of in the case of uh, mascots, I think of how powerful it is to alight someone to the concept of settler colonialism Hmm. in the sense that I feel like once you know that narrative, and it's not all that difficult to learn the narrative of what has happened uh, to Native peoples in the United States of America and what continues to happen to them. Mm -hmm. And that being that we took their land and we maintain uh, the paradigms we have in place that keep it so that they don't get their land uh, and that we keep it and make money off of it. Is that uh, once you learn that narrative, it's like it's not a liberal or conservative thing. Uh, it's a moral thing that's really easy to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just how powerful and important it is to teach these things in effective ways. Well, yeah, and I think that that gets to that really core piece of it there, that what we're talking about is 
ethics and morality here at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, what should our expectations be in that regard for corporations and for sports entities? Um, and how do we, uh, uh, you know, uh, how does building a consensus in one place, you know, we've seen that, that consensus kind of grow around black lives matter and now it's resonating in many places. Um, right. So how do you build it and then exert the kind of pressure you want to, um, uh, on the current system while also building a better system perhaps for the future. Right. Yeah, that's well said. There's great irony by the way. And the fact that I'm currently staring at a, uh, envelope and a letter from, uh, our grandparents when they were in China with Chinese stamps on it uh, and everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Well, if anybody has suggestions on how to deal with what's going on in China right now, I am all ears because I'm kind of at a loss to know what to do about it because it just doesn't seem like as much we can do about it. So uh, any feedback would be appreciated. Yeah, amen. Yeah, I don't even know what to say other than I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's uh, it's just, you know, there's so much to be upset about in the world right now. Uh, and it's just kind of overwhelming. But mm-hmm. uh, it's particularly overwhelming because I don't know how to respond to so much of it. Like, there's nothing I can do to Brian Kemp and uh, this asshole down in Florida um, yes. and in Arizona. There's nothing I can do to him. Um, right. And so what do you do? Yeah. Yep. There's nothing I can do to what's his face in China that's shutting everything down right now as far as I can tell. So if there's something we can do, let us know. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it would be... F- important to kind of maybe spend this next week like researching that question mm-hmm. with a little bit of earnestness is something I can commit to. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we've gone to that place, uh, do you have some trivia for us? Yeah, I do. Um, last week I asked you how many cans of Red Bull are sold in a year. And some context for that was Formula One related that uh, they spend $181 million a year on their two Formula One teams. And that's a fraction of what they spend uh, in sports advertising. Um, So closely related to our topic for this week. But uh, did you have a guess how many cans of Red Bull are sold in a year? I I have just no idea. (laughs) Uh, It's $7.5 billion. Wow. Do you, do you have any breakdown on like where it is that most of those sales are happening? Uh, primarily in the United States, okay. uh, uh, despite it being a European company, hmm. a German company, actually. Um, it, well, German, the co-owners uh, is a German guy and a Thai guy. Um, and interestingly, the Thai owner, I believe, was... Um, a pharmacist and kind of concocted hmm. an energy drink to help with um, hangovers. And the German entrepreneur uh, drank it one time and it worked and he really liked it. And so he got hmm. with him and came up with Red Bull. We should probably spend an episode um, talking about RB Leipzig at some point. That's a fascinating story that I think we could dig into some more. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, so for this week... Well, just um, a second. I, I tasked you with another part of this, right? So uh, how many... Do you, did you look up how many uh, things cans of Coca-Cola or whatever are sold? Oh, every? no, I didn't. I forgot oh, to do oh, that. Oh, my goodness, Kyle. Sorry. Sorry, I'm teacher. I'm so disappointed. Sorry, teacher. Well, uh, <laughs> all right, I'll make a note to find that for next right. week. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So a petition was filed this week by the National Congress of American Indians to have Jim Thorpe reestablished as the sole winner of gold in the 1912 games. Hmm. Uh, His records were removed and his status as winner of two gold medals was taken away because he had taken pay to play minor league baseball just a few weeks before the Olympics. Uh, It was later, um, I think not until the 80s, he was listed as winner but he was only listed as co-winner. Um, so they would not take away a gold medal in the record books from the people um, that won because Jim Thorpe's medals were taken away. So the basic question I have is, uh, what events did he win? He won two gold medals. Okay. I'm not going to answer because I'm pretty sure I know one of them. Um, okay. But I'm intrigued to come back next week. Uh, okay. Figure out. It's in, that's a fascinating story. Um, it really is. Uh, you know, I would think that it would it would be fairly simple for me that I'm like just give it to him. Right. But you're also taking it away from someone at that point, which raises a whole another level of complexity to it. Yes. It's like their whole family has had a gold medal winner in their family for years, and now they're not right. going to have it anymore. Exactly. Hmm. Anyway. I think I'm on the side of yeah. Sorry. <laughs> like, yeah, what happened to Jim Thorpe was worse than you losing your fake gold medal. Hmm. Um, maybe that's too harsh. I don't know. Well, but I think it's it's so it's tough because it's from a uh, an international. We're looking at it from a national context for international competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, I don't know what the complexities of how the situation were. I'm sure there were. Uh, ridiculous and absurd um right but at the same time like uh that german individual uh you know uh who knows like uh, i think i come down on that side too but like they don't they don't know that context they're not part of that that conversation right um hmm. interesting yeah well, Jim Thorpe in public was apathetic about it. I don't know how he felt uh, outside of the public eye, but uh, his comments were always of, yeah, I know I won. I don't care what the books say. Hmm. Like everyone watched me win those events, so deal with it. Interesting. Yeah. Which is probably what we want in our athletes, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Well, all, all right. right. Tune in next week for which events did he win, and don't Google it. Just wait for us to <laughs> talk about it. Um, well, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Kyle, for always uh, taking time for this. But uh, give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, and we'll hopefully be back next week with some more uh, uh, fascinating conversation and some information about Jim Thorpe, who is uh, one of the most fascinating athletes of all time. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. Pay attention.
attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.